sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul and Ben. Um, Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and just so glad that each one of you are with us this morning. Uh, It's great to be here together uh, in community and celebrating um, the good news of the gospel together as a church family, which is hopefully what we're doing each and every Sunday that we're gathered here. And as we uh, continue in 1 Corinthians, a new series we began last week, I'd love to begin our time and ask that God would help us to understand his word. So um, let me do that now. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you uh, speak to us, um, that you reveal to us that the world that you've created pours forth speech and that you've also given us the gift of your word um, that points us supremely to Jesus as the ultimate revelation of who you are. So I pray that this morning as we uh, study this passage in 1 Corinthians, you would, by the power of your spirit, um, reveal to us Uh, what you would have us do, um, who you would have us be, what you would have us love. Um, Make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Brian Regan uh, is one of my favorite comedians, and in one of his uh, comedy specials, he he does one of my my favorite bits. He he describes an experience that that I think most of us have had at one point or another. Um, Maybe you've actually just had this experience not long ago. Uh, Maybe it was at the office Christmas party, or or maybe you're a mom and you were together uh, at a play group with some other moms, um, and, and you had this experience. Let me just let Brian describe it. Take a look here. I mean, we, we all know that guy, don't we? And, and whether we're willing to admit it or not, we, we've probably all been that guy. I mean, I, I know that I have. Uh, I mean, I love talking about myself. I mean, who doesn't love talking about themselves a little bit? Um, what is it about that? I mean, like Brian said, what is it about human nature that, that we get something out of that? And, and sure, we aren't always as, as blatant about it as that, right? But, but we have sort of subtle ways as, of letting people know, right, how, how awesome we think we are, especially on social media. In fact, one of the writers of the show, Parks and Rec, uh, coined a term a while back. This term's actually found its way into the Oxford English Dictionary. It's, it's the term humble brag. You've probably uh, maybe heard of this. The, the dictionary describes it as this sort of modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something that one is proud of. So, you know, classic example of the dictionary list is like, ah, I just spilled red wine all over my new book contract, bumbling through life. You know, no, no one reading that post is sitting there thinking, wow, this person just doesn't have their life together. No, no, everybody's there like, okay, really? <laughs> I guess they really wanted us to know about that book contract. Or, but, you know, we can do this with our faith too. I mean, as, as Christians, you can say like, wow, it's, I'm really bummed. It's missed my reading my Bible two days this month. Um, or, or with people that we disagree with theologically, we can make being right sort of an idol that, you know, I've, I've got it all figured out and, and these people haven't even read the Bible, you know, um, those kinds of things. But why do we do this? Why do we brag? And what is it about our, our human nature that gets something out of that? 
I think at its core, it's because we are insecure. We want people to notice us, to value us, to appreciate us, to care for us, to be impressed with who we are. And C.S. Lewis once remarked that it's, it's only the little tiny dogs that are always yipping and yapping and barking all the time. He says, the big dogs can just sit there. They know they're big. The, the little dogs are the ones who have to make a big show about it. And, and boasting was a big problem in the church of Corinth, the, the church that Paul had planted there. And there was lots of this, well, well my faith is better than yours. Well, I'm more gifted than you. I, I follow the real leader. I, I'm the one who really gets it. It, but in fact, boasting was just one of many problems that, that Paul was addressing in his letter to the, what we have as the letter of 1 Corinthians in our Bibles. And Corinth was this cosmopolitan hub of, of social climbers and new money intellectuals, rhetoricians. And, and, and boasting was, a natural, was as natural to them as it is to us. But this boasting was, it was tearing the church apart. And so from right from the beginning of this letter, right here in chapter 1, Paul makes it crystal clear. He says, church, you only have one thing to boast in. Church, you only have one thing to boast in. (laughs) There's only one thing they can boast in. I mean, just look what God is doing here. And there's three things that Paul highlights in these verses. And the first is that God's way always seems foolish. God's people always seem foolish. And God's message always seems foolish. There's only one thing we can boast in. And God has made it obvious in this passage that the only thing we can boast in is Christ and him crucified. I mean, honestly, if you're a Christian here this morning, God really hasn't given you room to boast in anything else. But, but some of you here this morning, you, you wouldn't consider yourself Christians. And you're saying, actually, this is exactly it, Bill. That's, that's why I don't buy any of this. It's so, it just seems so foolish. And, and if that's where you're at this morning, I mean, take comfort in the fact that you're, you're not alone. I mean, even Paul here, he calls it foolish. I mean, he gets it, right? This is not what we would have made up. It's not what we expect. But for Christians, it is our only boast. It may seem foolish, but it's the wisdom of God. And the reality is is that God's way always seems foolish, especially at first. So so look at what Paul writes in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. He says, for the word of the cross, the message about the cross, it's, it's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In verse 18, this is a key verse for understanding this whole passage. And Paul basically says there's two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those who are rebelling and those who are being rescued. Those who are being ruined and those who are being restored. And it's the cross that is the dividing line that separates the two. To one, the cross is utter foolish. To the other, it is the very power of God. God's glory displayed, his upside-down wisdom made manifest. And Paul quotes here from Isaiah. We did a little bit of reading from Isaiah in the Confession, or actually from Jeremiah, but this this passage here is from Isaiah. And he's quoting the Old Testament, this passage that Isaiah had proclaimed to God's people that all of their efforts to save themselves through political allegiances would fail, but ultimately God would save them through his own unexpected ways. 
And if there's one thing that we see throughout the pages of Scripture that God works in surprising ways, in new ways, and yet those ways always seem foolish to us at first. I mean, to the Jews, it seemed inconceivable that the Messiah, the, the one who was supposed to rescue them from Rome, would be crucified by Rome. I mean, they demanded signs. They, they wanted more and more signs. In fact, when you read the Gospels, they're constantly demanding signs of Jesus. Prove to us who you are. But Jesus' life, his, his death, his resurrection, that was the sign. And, and we can also fall into this too, though, can't we? I mean, in terms of wanting a sign from God, making demands. God, sh- show me that you're really real. If you would just do this, then I would know that you exist. But it's never really enough, right? I mean, even if he answers or shows us the sign, we're still sort of left with a little bit of doubt in our minds often. And actually, another one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, I, I, he writes about this in his book, Dad is Fat. I, I love how he describes this. He, he tells a story about losing a kid at the mall. <laughs> He's got five kids. He tells the story of, of losing one of them in the mall. And he records this. He says, he, he prays to God, if you can help me find my son, I promise I will never do anything bad again. I won't even eat at Wendy's. Oh, wait, there he is. Never mind, God. Well, I guess we're off to Wendy's. (laughs) Talk to you when I get cancer. And and then he says, kids, and I love this, he says, kids and disease are always the gateway to faith. (laughs) Um, If you're looking for signs, the cross is always going to be a stumbling block because it doesn't look like the rescue that any of us want. If you're looking for signs, the cross is always going to seem like a stumbling block because it's not the rescue that we want. In fact, it looks utterly foolish. It literally looks ridiculous, worthy of ridicule. And that's why the Greeks reject it. Remember Corinth, it was all about social status, climbing the ladder and making a name for yourself and attaching yourself to a crucified Galilean Jew. And that was not the way to get ahead. In, in the Greek world. It's not the way to get ahead today. I mean, so, so to invoke the princess bride, this was inconceivable to them. I mean, they were all about logic and philosophy and science and rhetoric. I mean, if Jesus is true, why doesn't he make it easy? Why doesn't it just all make sense? Why isn't everything explained neatly? Why doesn't this make sense to us if it's true? Uh, but as C.S. Lewis points out in Mere Christianity, I love this. He says, there's no good complaining that these statements about Christ are difficult. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world we can touch and hear and see. And he says, you may think the claim false, but if it were true, what it tells us would be bound to be difficult, at least as difficult as modern physics, and for the same reason. You know, it's, it's almost as if we expect Jesus to come with a, with a textbook. We want Jesus, Christianity, to be, be more like a self-help book, right? I mean, how, this doesn't read like a self-help book, book. This is kind of a hard book to understand sometimes. We want, we want 10 easy steps to our, our best life now. We want practical how-tos. We want, we want DIYs. We want like, sort of like a real simple magazine of, of spirituality and life meaning. But what's God's answer What's his solution? I mean, it's a, it's a cross. A stumbling block. I mean, seemingly clear proof that, that Jesus' whole mission was worthless and a failure. I mean, he ends up dying on the cross. 
you know, and self-help and, and signs, you know, those would actually, those would be great if our problem was that we needed proof or if our problem was that, that we needed improvement. But that's not the root of our problem. Our problem as human beings is that, that we're dead people who need to be made alive, that, that we're rebels who need our rebellion forgiven and our hearts turned away from our old allegiances. We are people who have made good things into ultimate things and we need our loves reordered. So you see, every culture, every age sees something foolish in the cross. And there's always something. It's different things at different times, but the cross is always offensive. And actually, this is one of the reasons that I ultimately believe that the the cross is is true, that the message of the gospel is true, because it's not something we would have made up. It always offends us at some point. We're offended by the supernatural claim of, of Jesus being God incarnate. We're offended by God having wrath and needed of sacrifice, blood, all of that. We're offended that salvation is a free gift, and we'd much rather earn it. We'd much rather have still some control, some say in it. We're offended that God had to die for us to make us right. I mean, couldn't there have been some other way? Couldn't he have just let it go? I mean, he's God. Anyway, couldn't he just been the bigger person? The cross is offensive, and yet to those of us who understand and see it as the power of God, we shouldn't be surprised when it seems foolish to others, when it's despised. As as a Christian, you should never be shocked when people look at the message of the gospel, look at who Jesus is and say, really? In Christianity, it's, it's never been the way to be popular. But as Paul writes in verse 25 of chapter 1, he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And just to be clear here, Paul isn't, and God isn't anti-intellectual at all or anti-wisdom, quite the opposite. I mean, he's the one who gave you your brilliant mind and your unending quest for answers. We're made in his image. We've been given the gifts of, of question asking and logic and thought. That's all from him. I mean, so you don't have to check your brain at the door to become a Christian. In fact, if you do, you've missed it. But we end up putting our hope in how smart we think we are, or how sophisticated or how educated. And for the Corinthians, their social status was all about how educated and how smart they were. But it doesn't matter who you are. The cross is what it takes to rescue us, what it took to rescue me. So Paul's letting the believers in Corinth, these arrogant, self-absorbed, boasting believers, he's telling them, he's telling us, if you want to boast, boast in this. Boast in the fact that you're worse off than you think. Boast in the fact you're worse off than you think. You see, humanity, the, the, the cross says that even humanity at its best— our best ideas, or our best thinkers, that, that none of them by themselves are, are enough to know the wisdom of God, to really know who God is. Only the cross can reveal that to us. You see, the cross says that we are more desperately and hopelessly lost than we could ever begin to truly imagine. When we're so bad, I was so bad, God had to die for me. I mean, none of us likes that idea. When you really think about it. But it's the very wisdom of God. You you see, it's not the cross plus our wisdom. The great English preacher John Stott of last century put it this way. He says, powerless wisdom 
or foolish power. It was and is a fateful choice. The combination that is not an option is the wisdom of the world plus the power of the cross. Let me say that again. The the one option, the one combination that's not an option is the wisdom of the world plus the power of the cross. We can't move past the cross in our theology, our faith. I mean, we often try to do that still. And it's what was happening in Corinth. Okay, we got the cross, but, but now we need to sort of add our wisdom and our work onto this. You see, to move beyond the cross to gain some kind of wisdom is to abandon the faith altogether. There's only one thing we can boast in. There's only one thing we can boast in. And, and you see, it's, it's not just that God's way always seems foolish. And Paul makes it clear in verses 26 through 31 that, that God's people always seem foolish as well. He says, for consider your, this is verse 26, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The foolish, the weak, the lowly, that's who God chooses. And Paul is saying, look, if you think you have credentials, if you think you have something to offer, then you have missed it. It's not that these things of of having wisdom or influence or power or wealth or, or a lineage, it's not that those things are bad. And it's not that you can't be a Christian if you have those things. But if you rely on them to define you, then you haven't understood that your only hope is a man dying on a cross to rescue you. And Paul, who writes this letter, he's actually a great example of this. I mean, if anyone has credentials that he can, can stack up, it's Paul. I mean, Paul was, he was a scholar. He was a leading rabbi. He had the right pedigree. He was an overachiever. He lived a morally outstanding life. All of that. And, and yet, after he meets Jesus and, and his life is transformed, he writes this to the letter in his letter to the church at Philippians, at Philippi. He says, But whatever gains were mine, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Again, it's not that credentials, intelligence, influence, power, money, status, that any of those things are inherently bad or evil. There aren't. But if they are where you find your identity, your meaning, your hope, then you've completely missed the cross. That's what Paul is saying here. Because as Brian Regan reminded us at the beginning, we so easily in our fallenness and our brokenness, we, we fall into this pattern of boasting in ourselves, desperate to, to have people see how amazing and, and worthy of love and admiration we are. But this sort of comparison, this boasting, whether it's explicit or yeah, sort of explicit outwardly or, or more implicit inwardly or subtly, it, it actually destroys community. Because we, we, it means we hide, we posture, we only let people see our best. But in the gospel, we boast in our weakness. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you, if you want to boast in something, boast in this, that, that God called you when no one else would. 
If you want to boast of boast that God chose you when no one else would have. I love how one of the commentators paraphrases what Paul is saying here. He writes, who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? And we often think that God chose us and that that says something about who we are, how, how moral or smart or, or hardworking we are. But, but it's the exact opposite. The fact that God chose us tells us everything about who he is. Powerful, gracious, merciful, unstoppable, upside down in the way he approaches salvation. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the, the lowly, the powerful, the powerless, the weak to shame the powerful. So, so at the end of the day, Paul said, don't give yourself too much credit. I mean, what are your credentials? Paul says, we are low, we're despised, we are nothing. Boast in that, he says. It's the message that the world needs. But some of you may, may be thinking at this point, okay, Bill, I, I think I'm with you. I, I think I'm following you. I think I, I'm understanding what Paul is saying here. But, but how does this work if I'm, like, if I'm applying for a job or I'm in an interview for a college or I'm filling out a college application? I mean, do I just write the cross and, and be done with that? Don't we have to talk about ourselves sometimes in these situations? And it's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, so I just wanted, what are, just a quick aside, what are, how do you approach those situations? I think there's three kind of just quick tips here when you're in those, those kind of situations. First, as much as possible, let other people boast about you. <laughs> I mean, let your references in, on the job application, let your references in your college, let, let them do the over-the-top boasting about you. I mean, Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So as much as possible in those situations, point them to other people who can say, yeah, this is a really great person. Um, second, really ask God to help you think of yourself rightly. This is Paul's kind of exhortation in the book of Romans, that you would view yourselves rightly, not have too high an opinion of yourself. Ask God to really help you understand who you are, not to have too high a low, high opinion of yourself or too low opinion of yourself. Because often having too low an opinion of yourself is just a sneaky form of pride that is constantly asking other people to praise you. I mean, think about it. Think about the person who always says, oh, I'm... I'm no good, poor me, man, I just, I'm terrible at everything. How do people always respond to that? Oh, no, 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 you're great. We can, you're awesome. No, that's not true. When you're constantly down on yourself, it's just, it's a subtle invitation. Praise me. Build me up. Focus on me. So ask God to help you think rightly about yourself so that when you're in that interview on that application, you can just tell the truth. And third, trust that true, not false, we were just kind of describing that false humility, trust that true humility is really, truly, deeply attractive. Even more so than boasting or charisma. Because if you're in the corporate world, in the short term, talking about yourself, drawing attention to yourself, it may get you ahead. But in the long run, true humility is much more attractive. Business researcher, leadership expert Jim Collins uh, talks about this in, in countless studies that he's done time and again. The most effective and successful leaders are marked, what he calls level five leaders, are marked by a deep humility. And that sort of deep humility is a natural outworking when the gospel begins to get deep into your life. Because after all, there is only one thing we can boast in. 
There's only one thing we can boast in. But it's not just that God's way always seems foolish or his people always seem foolish. Even the message seems foolish too. But as Christians, the the message and its proclamation, it's all that we have. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 again. And this is where Paul says, "And, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and his cru- him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I mean, Paul's approach when he came to Corinth was fear and weakness. I mean, he didn't come with all this rhetorical flair and, and putting on a persuasive show. I mean, Paul was brilliant. He could have done that. You see, not only was his message, not only is the message of the cross foolish, but the way of spreading the message through preaching, I mean, that's, that's also foolish. Because you see, especially in the first century, this whole, even the whole vocabulary of preaching, preaching was not considered a rhetorical art form. In, in fact, no rhetorician in the first century would, would have described what they did as preaching. Not, this was like preaching, heralding. This was like reading the news. This is essentially what herald, what preachers did. They would, they would walk around reading the news. They would have never used the vocabulary of preaching to describe what they did. But really, Christian preaching is reading the news. It's proclaiming that something happened 2,000 years ago, that, that Jesus died on a cross, that it was followed by an empty tomb, that the forgiveness of sins has been made possible, a new world, it, it, that where all has been right, made right is coming. I mean, it, it may offend you, and it may look foolish to everyone else, but all we have is the cross, Christ and him crucified. We have a message, we have news to share. This is our message. This is our hope. This is what we offer a hurting world. And better than elegance, better than credentials, God's power to save. So if you're going to boast, boast in this. Boast that God works in spite of us. I mean, Paul says, I came in weakness. God worked in spite of him. This means you don't have to be awesome to make a difference. In fact, Paul actually says it's, it's, maybe it's better if you don't have all the credentials. Because if you don't have all the answers, you don't have the perfect words, you don't have the perfect life. This is the good news of the gospel of Christianity. You don't have to have all the right qualifications to, to work with kids or students, to lead a community group, to feed the homeless, to share your faith. You don't have to have, to have it all together. I mean, even Paul showed up in weakness and in fear and in trembling. But you see, that's when God's glory shines the brightest. Because in those moments, who else could get the credit but God? In the church, we often say, well, God uses all kinds of people. But we often, what we don't say is God uses people to despite people. He uses us because we are weak. And when he does, he gets the glory and we get the joy. I mean, honestly, I I can't tell you how inadequate I feel up here every week. 
because being a pastor, it's kind of this weird job. You know, I, I study this book all week and then I get up here and talk about it for a while, hoping that somehow we'll all find a better life week after week. Weakness and in fear as your mic falls off your ear. And this is, this is just it, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about. That's why in every sermon I preach, it's about Christ and him crucified. I don't have anything else to offer. I don't have any good ideas on how to make your life better, how to make you happier, more successful. All we have is a cross. And in the end, there's only one thing we can boast in. Jesus and him crucified. He's our only boast, our only hope, our only true and lasting joy, the, the one to whom every other joy points and to which every other joy is derived. So boast in Jesus and never stop boasting in him as long as you have life and breath. That's what it is to be a Christian, to never get over boasting in Jesus. He is our all and our everything. Paul writes in, in chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, he says, And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our boast. That's our hope. That's our joy and our life. The great Anglican theologian and church leader Richard Hooker said it this way, let it be counted folly or frenzy or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man has sinned and God has suffered, that God has made himself the sin of men and that men are made the righteousness of God. Amen. Thanks be to God that Jesus paid it all and all to him I own. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. There's only one thing we can boast in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that truly there's only one thing we can boast in. And forgive me for all the times when I boast in myself and when I want to find my significance and my accomplishments. Would I, would we find joy and satisfaction in life and boasting in Jesus? He has washed away all of our sins. Whose amazing grace, would that be the, the song that we sing for 10,000 years and then 10,000 more and 10,000 more? Would we continue to boast always in Christ alone? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, each